Okay, welcome, dear listeners, to another edition of the Jacobs Podcast. Joining me today is Jordan Shopov uh, from Melbourne. Jordan, welcome. G'day, mate. Good to see you again. Likewise, likewise. And um, I know we're going to try something a little bit sort of different today and just um, rather than sort of zero in on a particular topic, although one is very contemporary and that is the current or the just very recent federal election in Australia, uh, we just thought it would um, be a good chance to do some musings and maybe ramble on a bit, but just sort of throw it around a bit and keep it very casual for this episode. Um, so I guess on yeah, that... No, no show notes. Yes. No show notes. off piste. We're, we're going for that's it. That's right. So I thought I'd ask um, to start with, you're not a man that pays particularly close attention to politics, Jordan, uh, as past listeners would probably know. Um, you're certainly into... Uh, you Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and Adam Smith, um, so you kind of um, your ca- attention's captured elsewhere. But were you aware there was a federal election on for starters? Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah I found out a couple of days before, and then realised I had to vote, so I had to get my act together. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah I I wasn't even going to watch it. So we we went to a mate's place for dinner, and I I, I was just you know checking the ABC website just out of curiosity. And then saw that things were coming in way differently than what I thought. And I was like, hold on, what's going on? What's going on here? Like everyone probably did. Mm. And uh, yeah, then started getting a few messages from people. And yeah, Bob's your uncle. Um, so were you watching the whole thing, mate? Or did you did you check in after it? No, well, sort of, I was obviously um, sort of watching things from overseas or from New Zealand. And um, I kind of had kept loosely abreast of things, but... I think I was pretty shocked um, when I started to, about sort of 5 p.m., which would have been 7 p.m. Kiwi time, um, when you're starting to look at some of the exit polls. So I never watched any live TV, but um, certainly had enough info on Facebook, etc., to be um, sort of revealing what the what some of the, the polling was looking like and, and that sort of thing. And um, with the messages you were getting, were they... Um, sort of positive or shock or people um, threatening to leave the country or what was the sort of general flavour of of the the, updates you were getting? Uh, Yeah, a few things I probably can't repeat on a public record, so (laughs) I'll just, I'll keep it to myself. But yeah, no, it was more just the shock of what's going on, some good, some bad. But um, yeah, initially, I think because of how the odds were and what everyone was expecting, all of yeah, all the stuff I was getting was like, "What's what's happened?" Just because of the the surprise. And I mean, you obviously would have heard that sports bet like paid out on a Labor victory and stuff beforehand, and mm. like the coalition was paying something like seven bucks the day before the election, and yeah, you know, through the night ended up going into a dollar ten. Mm. So like that's a massive a massive like mix up i mean that's probably the biggest thing that i was uh drawn to at the start did you did you you hear about all that actually on the betting front do you sort of follow or know much about like betting and odds and that kind of thing or is it something that you because i one of the one of the a thing that one of my friends told me before like i mentioned the odds and usually sports bets on the money but he gave some really good explanation i wasn't really quite listening to it about how um you know the the odds the betting odds are not always a good thing to follow in terms of because if a lot of people you know who obviously put a lot of money behind labor a labor victory of course that's where the the payout's going to be and the money's going to be um so the odds like on sports bet wouldn't always reflect what 
you know, is, um, you know, what the smart bet is, I suppose. Um, does that make any yeah, sense? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah, no, it does. Because that's the reason I'm finding it interesting is because it's kind of like financial markets. It's like, you know, mm. just because, you know, uh, the financial markets are efficient most of the time, mm. but sometimes they get things wrong and the smart money is going against the grain. Mm. And in this case, the smart money was probably backing the coalition or not, you know, going in hard favourite on, on Labor. So there was something that people missed and, yeah, just kind of like, you know, if everyone's backing one stock or, you know, and it gets too high, then the price becomes detached from value. So in this case, the prices were not reflective of the actual chance of Labor or Liberal winning. So that disparity mm. was, yeah, quite evident on the night. Um, mm. And, I mean, the story I heard in the, in the press was that some guy put a million bucks on Labor a couple of weeks out. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, yeah, that guy is probably... Martin, I mean, Martin what a way to lose a million dollars. It was Turnbull's <laughs> son, I think. That was yeah. it was revealed to be. <laughs> He'd have the biggest hand. <laughs> but that was pretty good. Like that's a nice articulate kind of framing of it because um, you know, if you I guess what the big thing I guess coming out now is just and you know, I'm always amazed at the what people are able to throw together in a short space of time, but some people have, you know, have done some really good video cuts of, you know, what the experts were predicting, what the polling was supposedly saying. Um you know, all the talking heads, that sort of thing, right up even on the morning of election day and the prediction of 86 seats, 81 to Labor, that sort of thing. And for them to get this so wrong, I suppose, you know, with your investing sort of hat on, it's probably not a surprise, you know, that experts get it wrong. Um, But this is something that's obviously getting teased out a lot more with Brexit, um, uh, Trump, um, these sorts yeah. of things and, you know, what, what we're, you know, people are making the comparison now with the most recent election, but it's probably not anything new to you, but I think, um, you know, experts not being correct is getting a bit more of a uh, public scrutiny now than sure. before. Sure. Have you, um, have you checked out the website 538, Nate Silver's website? Yeah, have I have. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen it, read any of what a uh, recent analysis, but he's, yeah, he um, is a guy that's very, uh, featured pretty heavily did he do any write-ups on this or i haven't i haven't checked actually yeah. that'd be interesting i might go back and have a look but yeah i was following his stuff around um you know the american elections and he's probably he's pretty good in terms of translating all the poll data into probability forecasts which is kind of what these betting agencies do they take their data and try and handicap the odds of each side coming out on top mm. and yeah they're not always right the, the house doesn't always win mm. which is what they're trying to do but um, just on this front, like in terms of the data, see, so something wrong, something's gone wrong here on the data side of things. Like the betting agencies have got um, something's gone wrong in their process or something. And what Anthony Green, the stats guy on ABC, was saying is that it might have something to do with the fact that, uh, you know, 10 years ago, all the polling they did was based on landline info. And so they had a good grasp of where people were, the, like the ones they were sampling actually were in the location that they were calling. Mm-hmm. But nowadays, because they're calling mobiles, mm. there's no necessarily guarantee that they're uh, located where they say they are mm. or where the, I don't know where it's listed next to the mobile numbers or however they do mm. it. So maybe that means that they actually weren't getting an accurate sample of different areas and hence things like Queensland just went way out of whack and no one saw that coming. So yep. that might be what's what's happened, which I think is a pretty good, pretty good idea. Yeah, and I, I sense as well, you know, there's this shy Tory kind of, um, explanation that people mention too that 
you know, you're almost terrified uh, to mention that you'd dare vote Liberal, especially, I suppose, down in, um, you know, Victoria or some of the southern states compared to Queensland. But especially when you get prompted in a poll, like, it's not something you talk about or you'll openly admit, whereas if, you know, in the privacy of the ballot box, you'll do something different. And, you know, I, I sense that's probably as, as a factor, but, you know, there's probably you know, many different explanations. But, yeah, again, I just think it's a fascinating thing that we're, we're seeing, you know, this sort of divide between experts um, and predictions versus um, the sort of reality when people vote. And, of course, you know, people, some of the fallout from this has just been absolutely um, quite incredible to watch and some of the, the reactions we touched on before. But, you know, the... At the most extreme level, what I've seen, which is really quite um, horrible, is just that, you know, people got it wrong in terms of, you know, they didn't vote with what the, the polling was saying. So, um, you know, they've the people have spoken and they've got it wrong. So, and that was the sort of fallout yeah. as well from, you know, Brexit and, and Trump and, you know, how silly it was giving, you know, the general population a say in these things. But... Again, I just find that sort of gap quite interesting and some of the outrage behind it too. Yeah, everyone everyone wants democracy until it goes against them kind of thing. Yeah, that's right. And, um, Mate, do you think um, that silent Tory phenomenon you mentioned, mm. is that, do you reckon that's what happened in um, Queensland? Like, or is it something else that's going on up there? Yeah, look, I, I think it's an interesting kind of one. Um, uh, I think firstly that people have kind of located, you know, they're looking for an easy piece of blame and this quexit thing it's popped up it's like oh queensland voted this way therefore it's magnified a lot of the public sentiment that's happening on a nationwide level but people like oh well queensland's always been known as the deep north um a little backward um or the texas of australia compared to the southern supposedly more progressive states so the torch shines on it heavily a lot of the time um but yeah, look, I just kind of sense that one of the things that, you know, just to sort of take a step back and you look back to when Malcolm Turnbull, as former Prime Minister, um, stepped down and we had the Wentworth by-election. When was that? I think it was October last year yeah. or, you know, five, six months ago or six months plus ago. Um, you had, you know, a Karen Phelps victory um, out of that, um, uh, you know, a lot of enthusiasm um, for, I guess, climate change politics, uh, plus, you know, the central issue of refugees, asylum seekers, or border protection policies. Um, and then, I guess, all of the related, you know, and the enthusiasm too, coming off the sort of high of the um, same-sex marriage plebiscite, that you had front and centre harbourside politics, you know, inner city Sydney harbourside politics. And it sort of seems that Labor tried to replicate that you know this is a very basic um you know t interpretation of it but the sort of approach by them it seemed was to try and replicate harborside politics in other parts of australia where in a place like queensland it's probably not a really good electoral winning strategy where you have you know huge unemployment in some regional parts of queensland a lot of livelihoods depend on the mineral and resources sector um, you know, Adani, the Adani mine, for example, has been held in limbo by the Labor state government there, um, you know, and the Labor federal government hadn't got behind it. And the sort of politics that they were kind of playing at just really ran counter 
to, um, I guess, what you know a lot of people felt in Queensland. So I can understand why running a sort of campaign like that would work well in some seats, but it was certainly you know jobs, employment, growth, these sorts of bread and butter issues. You know, energy. Um, you know what you're paying on your bill mean a lot in that part of the world as they do in other parts of Australia. Um, you know, like WA and seeing the result there. Um, NT to a lesser degree. But um, yeah, just sort of sense that that had a lot kind of to do with what the politics were like in Queensland. By, yeah. by harborside politics, you're talking like the focus on kind of class warfare and climate change, that type of oh, stuff. Yeah, yeah, from... yeah, that's that kind of thing. And, um, yeah. you know, again, I think that works well in some settings and there's a lot of enthusiasm for those kinds of those pol the advocating for those policies um, and using the middle election platform in some instances, but certainly not in this case um, and clearly wasn't a good um, sell in in Queensland. But, you know, one of, you know, some of the other, you know, if you read The Spectator and um, and those sorts of publications, and David Flint, for example, writes for them, but he did quite a sensible analysis of where, you know, just by looking at, I think it was, you know, franking credits and inheritance tax or negative property ownership, and just did a seat by seat kind of breakdown. Um, you know, and, you know, he's a lawyer, so he's not a um, an economist or a polling expert in any sense, but it was a really good analysis of where, and he was able to just call it that the Labor were not going to win. So I think in the sense that, you know, jobs, economic growth, livelihoods, all those things mean a great deal in Queensland. You know, it's also property ownership um, and, you know, ownership of, um, uh, you know, issues like inheritance tax, people who built, you know, created a livelihood or a nest egg over their whole lives who probably didn't have any sort of fierce philosophical or political persuasions but were like look you're going to get taxed extremely heavily you know as high as 40 percent on some inheritances that you'd pass on plus you know the shaving of franking credits these sorts of things where um you know it, it was probably just it would reveal if you just looked at those two stats and as david flint did that um again it, it's not going to fly in in queensland and a lot of other places as well yeah, I think um, just on the tax stuff, like if there's one common denominator across party lines is that people want to pay less tax. Like every every person I spoke to afterwards, it's like, you know, you might not know which side of the fence they sit on, but the common thing is that everyone wants to pay less tax. So yeah. you're really, you know, you know, pushing uphill when you're trying to get through some of the things that, you know, Labor wanted to. Mm. Um, on a side note, did you just coin the term Quexit, or is that no, is no, that that's around? that's come out since then. Um, I'd love to take okay. credit for it, but it's one that I heard um, for the first time a couple of um, nights ago. So obviously post election, and I yeah, very, very good. Yeah, good. And and Clive didn't get back into the house or anything like that. So yeah, wow, which is um quite amazing. You know, just seeing some of the numbers that he spent on on advertising, and even just so far out. I can remember, not even last year. It might have even been the year before that when. Um, you know, some of his billboards started appearing you know, around the Gold Coast and, and Brizzy as well. They're all down here as well. I was surprised to see them around Geelong. So wow, yeah. Yeah, he definitely. Yeah. Although, what do you think about the conspiracy theory that uh, Palmer's actual goal is not to get elected, it's just to, <laughs> it's just to uh, push Labor out so the Libs get in? Like, oh. what, do you, what do you make of that? Oh, who knows? I think Clive, I think Palmer's in it for himself. 
Uh, so <laughs> I, I don't know if there's such deep, grand um, strategy there. But, you know, I, I believe some people would believe it, definitely. <laughs> yeah. And when you when you speak of Quexit, I think it really... I mean, I don't know if we can put this election up there with, like, Trump and Brexit. I think if it's, for it to be in the same category as that, you have to... If we had Clive actually get elected and take a few more seats, then you might be able to you know, put it on par with those things. I don't know how you feel about that. Like, mm. do you feel like this is such a significant political moment or I, like surely not as big as the UK and the US experiences? Yeah, look, I don't think so. I think, um, you know, people, that's the sort of, I was quite surprised to read the headlines, you know, like Trump, Brexit, now I've got, you know, the liberal win here. I don't really think yeah. so. I, yeah. What do you feel? Yeah, no, I don't. I, don't, I mean, what do we got? We got a, you know, he's, he, if you take out the original expectations, because that's really, really what the big drama is, people's expectations were mm. proved wrong. True. But like, what have we got now? We've got a slim majority. Um, you know, nothing much has really changed. Mm. I mean, ScoMo's kind of picked up where Turnbull left off. Hasn't got you know any really revolutionary policies behind him at the moment. Mm. So I don't know. It all seems pretty like business as usual. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, and I'm sort of conscious too of of you know this sort of halo effect where. Um, you know, it's like if, you know, if, say, ScoMo lost, then people would, you know, all the characteristics that would pra we praise now would all of, all of a sudden become, you know, like he was, you know, too, like, you know, he's very down to earth. He's a very ladsy kind of um, prime minister. You know, if he lost, it would be, you know, he's too folksy or he's trying to put put it yeah. on too much. Like there's all these sorts of things I think we've mentioned on previous episodes about Phil Rosenzweig's book, The Halo Effect, where you see this in companies, like in organisations, in businesses, like with all kinds of public figures where, um, you know, certain characteristics are praised when um, a leader's on top and doing well, but then all of a sudden become yeah, um, liabilities once things turn. And I think there's a very real chance of that happening had <laughs> um, yeah. you know, the, the outcome not been the same for ScoMo. Yeah, we build like a, a false narrative around whatever outcome uh, eventuates kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's right. Um, mate, probably the biggest uh, news of the night was Abbott losing his seat. Yeah. You must, be, you must be actually a bit sad about that one. Yeah, no, generally am. I think, you know, he's um, sort of didn't really realise until the night of the election exactly how long he'd been around for. And, you know, 25 years is a huge, huge innings to be... Um, you know, involved in public life, let alone being an MP for a seat um, like Warringah. Um, and, yeah, I just sort of, yeah, obviously pretty sad. But I think when he, he mentioned that he'd rather go out a loser than a quitter was a nice way to, to put it. And you could just see the sort of grace that he held himself um, with till the very end. And even just how he conducted himself in his sort of last few years in, in Parliament was pretty good, I think, as far as former Prime Ministers go. Um, sitting on the back bench and, and I guess taking a lot of, you know, indignity and a lot of heat from people about past mistakes and wrong decisions from people who are, you know, on the same team. Um, and, yeah, I just think he's... Um, that was quite sad. And, you know, the so-called, quote-unquote, I'm doing air quotes here um, for listeners, uh, independent candidate, um, Zali Stiegel, um was obviously, you know, backed by GetUp and had a lot of resources behind them. And I just sort of sense that there's a bit of Maxine, McHugh, Benelong 07 there, where 
we can't one hit wonder. Yeah, well, I just inevitably think that's what's gonna sort of happen. Um, you know, around the... just like just like the Baja man, <laughs> who let the dogs out. Oh, classic! Your favorite, your yeah. favorite song. <laughs> uh, yeah, a, a bit of an end of an era, really. Like you think Turnbull and Abbott now, like mm. you know, given their history and what they, you know, their contests and stuff. Like we were talking the other week about the Republican monarchist mm. uh, stuff. Oh, yeah. It's actually quite amazing now to think that they're both out of parliament. Mm. Well, that's right. And just that, like, that was probably a big personal shock to me is just like that that is now, a you know, a dead issue for at least for the next three years. Um, you know, but it could have been, you know, all the policy differences aside, that's going to, that was a, you know, like we covered, that's going to be a, that would have been a seismic issue if Labor had got up, um, you know. So that was a waste, waste of an episode, <laughs> Yeah, I'll go back and delete it. There's no need to keep <laughs> yeah. it on there. Um, uh, yeah. yeah, so I I think that was um you know very surprising. You know, just a, a good, again a good example of the different tracks that could have been taken and how this. I didn't um, I didn't realize what you said about get up. I didn't realize how involved they were with that seat. That's pretty. Yeah, um, I'm not sure if I'm scared or shocked, but like yeah, they clearly decided that he was the biggest threat to the climate movement mm. and they just went for him directly. That's yeah. Yeah. Well, they sort um, of did a bit of a game where, you know, they went for all, it was like, you know, Dixon, um, Peter Dutton's seat, um, hasty in WA. Um, they sort of just picked on people who they knew that they could, you know, have a good shot at just throw it and then just went hard at them. Um, yeah. and I, you know, I, I just think that that, you know, Dixon, you know, I think Dutton got back in with, um, even more of a margin and um, you know that's a part of Brisbane where you know I don't sense that that sort of style of get up politics would would work and probably just is emblematic of um, you know yeah. what the approach was in wider Queensland about people not having all well, those ideas not having progressive ideas not having too much of a reception in that part of the world um I don't know if you saw Johnny Howard speaking on election night, but he was, uh, yeah, he looked a bit sad as well mm. that Tony was, uh, Tony was, yeah, retiring. Yeah. But he actually, I really liked Howard's comments. Did you see them by any chance? Um, I read a couple of lines that he mentioned, but didn't watch the whole thing. What did he say? He was mainly talking about um, Shorten's big mistake was focusing on class warfare. And he, he said a couple of things which reminded me of you. He said, Australians have a very egalitarian culture and they don't like class warfare. And mm. that was a big mistake on Shorten's behalf to focus on that issue. Mm. And I, I thought, that yeah, that's exactly what mm. you've been talking about in terms of our history and culture. He, yeah, yeah, doesn't sit well with Australians. Well, that's, yeah, that's right. And I think, like, you sort of, it's, uh, I guess it's nice to see that, um idea resurge and present itself in current politics you know especially at a time when there's that sort of skepticism we spoke about i think late last year about you know that skepticism around capitalism mobility the system's rigged um, inequality and these sorts of issues and i think that's the sort of you know people uh i guess are suspicious yes of you know class warfare and class politics and that kind of thing and I, you know yes one of the reasons is because we've got an egalitarian you know, culture, but, you know, we've got a mobile economy as well, you know, one that rewards, you know, all these sorts of values that rewards capitalism. But, um, 
or is, you know, is presented well in a capitalist system, but, you know, we've got a fair system that enables mobility and that's a reason, you know, why people have a bit of trust in the system, I guess, compared to a lot of other places. And, um, yeah, no, it's a good good point. And I, I just sort of sense with, you know, looking at the policy issues, did you, you know, if capitalism didn't feature too heavily, um, but, you know, to break that down, are there any economic issues that sort of, um, percolated up, you know, to you, not following politics too closely, but that you were loosely aware of during the campaign? I mean, yeah, and not checking in that often probably gave me a sense of the things that were most polarising because, like, I only catch the news briefly mm. and so whatever I'm going to catch is going to be the main topic. And one of them was tax, the other one was climate change. Mm. And, like, on the tax front, you've got the uh, negative gearing and franking credits mm. were clearly the the key issues mm. and then you know, every, the usual story with the climate stuff. But I think maybe one thing people might be underrating with the tax side of things, mm. I mean, negative gearing is no surprise. Everyone's geared to the property market. So, of course, that's going to be a hot, hot button. Mm. But with the franking credits, I think everyone's underestimating how much of an impact low interest rates is having. Like, you can't... Mm. If you most people in Australia today who are you know retirees would be living off their dividends from like the banks and BHP and stuff, and the franking credits is is huge. Like you, uh, what mm. else? What's your alternative? Put it in a term deposit and two percent on your money. Mm. It's like people can't live off that. So I think they might have underestimated how up against the wall some people are uh, already. And if you took those franking credits away, poof, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it would have been really, really tough on some people. Yeah, and I know that. Um, I know that with the um, the thing that they were proposing was actually just taking away the refund, not in, not the entire credit right. itself. But even I was talking to Soph about this, and she's like, "Oh, I thought they were talking about getting rid of the whole thing." Yeah. And I think that's just because it, it is, you know, tax is always complicated to talk about, yeah. and it's partly because you know that's why we have accountants to help you get around these loopholes yeah. and things like that because it is complicated. So trying to have a open debate about it you know over the radio with mm. everyone is always gonna it's never gonna come across clearly and i think mm. just you know putting in people's position the low interest rates and then throwing the fact that it's a complicated issue people would have just gone and mm. you know they would have just like run for the hills seeing that yeah but, well that's that's just my interpretation of yeah it. fair cool fair cool i'll be curious well the, the other one obviously is the climate stuff mm. and i guess i've kind of tried to I've tried to tune out of that debate because I find it so frustrating and exhausting and having, you know, worked in public policy for three years and dealing a lot with that, it was like, that was enough for me for a lifetime. I don't really want to have to go back to it. It's that exhausting and painful. Mm. But I think I was surprised on the Sunday. Mm. I was catching up with a few friends and that seemed to be the the key thing that, uh, yeah, that, that mm. this isn't exactly a representative sample size. Like my friends are inner city mm -hmm. uh, lefties kind of thing. So climate change is always going to be a big issue for them. Yeah. But I was quite surprised by how much people are sort of like enraged by this issue on the left. Mm. And they they feel that only voting for the Labor or Greens is the way to get it done. I, I don't know. What are, what's your take on this? Like how, are people really that worried about climate change or am I just getting a, the wrong yeah. sample of it. No, look, I sense that... Uh, actually, I was just thinking about this today properly. When you think about, like, how long this sort of issue's gone on for at a federal level in Australia, you know, I remember when we were, um, you know, in Canberra, like, and we were starting to look at, you know, the emissions trade. Like, this is probably... Oh, even longer ago than that, when Rudd was around. And then yeah. the, you had the 
ETS idea, then um, that sort of fell out of favour, then came back in. Um, the carbon tax was the sort of central talking point, especially in, you know, between 2010 and 2013 um, that Abbott got rid of when he came in. Um, then you have this sort of period of, you know, growing international um, targets and the international agreements and the and a regime around, um, yeah, again, what, what goal setting there, there's to be to 2050 and getting a net carbon zero and these sorts of things. So yeah, it's kind of like, but in Australia, there hasn't really been, you know, any serious uh, policy or political outcome of, you know, when it comes to... Con and this has been an issue that's been going around for 10 plus years. And I just sort of sense that, like, there, there hasn't been, you know, if you're enthusiastic about these sorts of issues, anything to really hang your hat on about, you know, around proper expectations about um, delivering a proper policy uh, manifesto and implementing it on climate policies to actually... So it's been an interesting one. I think that, you know, your enthusiasm or inspiration, if you are passionate about this, these issues, isn't going to come, isn't coming from the political arena. It's obviously coming from outside. Um, yeah. And I think that that's been, you know, again, I think a lot of that tone's been set by, um, you know, Paris and, you know, Copenhagen, or a lot of the international um, sorts of, you know, meetings and things that we've had. And I guess, you know, at the same time, you know, a lot of blowback against that politically and the success of, you know, p political candidates, you know, Trump, for example, pulling out of the Paris Agreement, um, you know, that's sending a bit of a shockwave for electoral, you know, for politics, thinking about political survival on either side and what the kind of message yeah. that kind of sends um, to you if you're, you know, like you mentioned, uh, inner city lefties, very enthusiastic about these issues. But um, why do you sort of think that people are sort of, um, so really chewed on to these issues. Yeah, because I'll be honest, I'm surprised. I thought people would have gotten weary of the topic. By yeah. Now. Like yeah. Ten, 10 years on, mm. I'm surprised it hasn't kind of drifted from the scene. And the like the way the issue now gets framed when it comes up in conversations, do you believe in climate change? And mm. that to me is kind of emblematic of maybe something else that's going on. It's almost like a cultural issue. Mm. Because the fact that the word believe gets used, mm. like it shouldn't be about, it shouldn't be about whether you believe or not believe mm. in uh, climate change. The, the question is, uh, what's the best policy response? Mm. And that's an entirely different thing to do with economics and governance and property rights and international relations. It's much mm. more complicated. And, and than politics too. Yeah. Yeah. And the fact that people just put it down to do you believe or not believe, it's like it's a religious question. Mm. It's like, is God real Well, it's or not? like that, you know, um, I think, like, as corresponding with another friend on this um, over the past sort of week about how, um, you know, like a very classic interview thing, like you say, is um, do you believe? But then it's, you know, if you support X, um, therefore you don't support Y. And if you support yeah. Y, you know, therefore. And it's like this really weak rhetorical technique that interviewers. It was like the classic Jordan Peterson, Kathy Newman interview. like. Yeah. You know, it's just this bizarre link that, you know, it, it makes sense to try and dumb things down, you know, in, a, in an interview where you can't talk about complexities and jam them into a five sort of minute segment on TV. But it's the right, it's the wrong way to go about things. Like you say, when you you need to really calibrate political, cultural, economic, social, 
international considerations when weighing these sorts of things up but from a public policy point of view yeah and instead it's gotten to the stage where like talking to people it's like if we don't you know if you you know i believe in climate change and if we don't do something soon the world is going to end mm. and it's like when did it become so mm. like you yeah. know fanatical and it yeah it has almost like religious connotations and mm. uh yeah, and I think when it gets to that stage, it makes it even harder to have a proper debate about the policy stuff. Yeah. And that makes me a bit more worried about the whole issue yeah. than, yeah. Because I'm like, i curious as to whether you think the coalition is going to try and change its policy to try and, you know, placate those on the left or, mm. you know, do you have any sense of what they might do or should do? Yeah, look, I, th- I just sense that actually, but just on that before we move on, um, I'll jump mm. to that in a sec, but uh, one of the things that, sort of sprang to mind when you read some of the, um, you know, what we were just talking about before about people being so tuned into issues like that. Um, yeah. Um, imagine if young people had that same approach to debt, um, you know, like, yeah. and that same <laughs> outrage, because I was thinking about you too, when people, you know, like if you apply that to another pertinent issue, this is hugely important. Um, like Niall Ferguson's talked about it. I think we quoted him in one of the first pieces we published together um, yeah, about, yeah. you know, if you're a young, you know, millennial and you're genuinely worried about the future and future, you know, like your future, you should be really worried about um, debt and fiscal debt and um, unfunded liabilities. Um, and yeah. it's interesting that, you know, that you don't have that. <laughs> but if you're... Yeah, like same, back in the... Yeah, that, that same... Um, yeah enthusiasm again and that those that sort of outrage and the care and you know huge concern on that issue then that would not only make Niall Ferguson but yourself happy yeah and you you know back in the day it was like a religious debate between should we have uh zero public debt or just a little public debt and now it's like not even it's not even on the table but yeah it's funny how these things evolve and what becomes so polarizing Mm. but yeah. Anyway, you're going. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Uh, so, yeah, and but um, that yeah, I think look, uh, there's a pretty clear mandate, I guess, in terms of you know with Munger's inversion about what not to do, and I think we touched on that at the start about the policies not to pursue. Like, I think you know doing simple things right, so you know re-establishing a solid border protection regime in Australia, um, not slamming people with excessive taxes, um, giving peace people you know tax cuts. Um, space to grow economically, um, you know, stimulating business, um, you know, red tape reduction, all these sorts of things. And I think, you know, there's a, you know, not rocking the boat would be a, you know, a good sort of start and returning things to normalcy. I think, you know, the Liberals and ScoMo has got a pretty clear mandate for that. Um, And, you know, I just sense that that would be a sensible way to go, um, you know, in the first sort of, I guess, year or so. Um, what are you? Th- what are your thoughts, Jordan? Um, on the climate stuff, I'm kind of hoping that they make some sort of play around uh, freer energy markets mm-hmm. and a focus on efficiency rather than trying to pick winners. Because at the moment, it seems to be a dog's breakfast. And mm-hmm. I think it's. I think I was reading a while back that the US have actually managed to reduce their emissions much more than they anticipated, just because they've uh, been extracting their energy more efficiently. Mm. It's kind of like, 
you know, if you want to buy a new car and you look for one that's more efficient, you're going to use less emissions because you're being more efficient. So it's like people kind of forget that efficiency and being more economic with your resources actually reduces emissions. Mm. And I think that's an easy way for the coalition to kind of, you know, tackle energy prices and, you know, mm. placate the environmentalists at the same time. Because, yeah. yeah, I mean, we all want to, you know, use our resources more effectively and, you know, even the people on the right want to protect the environment. I think that's one thing that kind of gets lost in all this. The people on the left kind of want to label everyone on the right as like, yeah. you know, like litter has gone mad. It's, that's not true. Like, yeah. I would consider myself on the right of centre for this debate. Yeah. And I want to preserve the environment and I don't want, you know, yeah. the the world to explode from climate change or anything yeah. like that. But it's it's more about the way you go about it. And I feel like that, I yeah, I really hope that they can try and nut out something there which kind of tackles energy prices and and the climate stuff in the, you know, two birds with, yeah. in the zone kind of thing. Yeah, that's right. And I think it's a good point, like, about, like, packaging it up and sort of not maybe talking about, you know, like, you, you want to talk about efficiencies and, you know, about costs and, you know, doing things better and improved innovative practices and those sorts of things um, versus, you know, running too hard on punitive sanction for... Um, you know, adaptation, you know, or mitigation measures, for example, with greenhouse gases. Um, yeah. yeah. We touched on the Republican sort of issue, but there's a lot of things that come out of that that we talked about on last on the last episode that are vaguely kind of reminiscent or very reminiscent a lot of instances of the culture wars in the 1990s that sort of been creeping back into the public um, debate again and back into politics slightly. Certainly not as per- pertinent yeah. as sort of franking credits or you know negative gearing or inheritance tax but i think that a a kind of um a a bit unsettling to people you know again like we touched on departing from you know switching up the game and switching from a governor general to a president um you know detaching from britain um you know a potential referendum on you know an indigenous preamble the constitution or a separate indigenous but a lot of sort of things that are kind of bubbling away um that are big seismic things um you know you look for example even at free speech issues and the recent israel falau saga and freedom of religion in schools um you know and these sorts of things i guess being uh perceived as being under threat um for a lot of people so as much as sort of functional and economic and policy issues, there's also, I think, a bit of unease out there about um, rocking the boat too much with very, you know, ultra progressive ideas. And I suppose a, a huge infringement upon things like religious liberties and freedom of speech. So I think yeah. that's sort of an, a bit of background music in this that probably shouldn't be um, eagerly brushed aside at the expense of just looking oh. at policy issues. Completely agree. And I think, you, you know, talking about culture wars, I think you hit the nail on the head with the, the free speech stuff. Like, I feel like that has become the sort of battleground for our mm. modern culture wars. I mean, that's to be, that that's why Jordan Peterson has gotten the traction that he has because mm. he is at the, at the forefront of that debate. Mm. And actually, I've been wanting to ask you about uh, Israel Folau and whether you've been following it. Have you got, I know we're getting off top of the election now, but uh, have you been... What are your thoughts on how that's playing? Yeah, look, I think that's been on the whole is so unfortunate. You know, who would have ever thought that, um, you know, we, one of our greatest try scorers and best fullbacks and, you know, an absolute machine would be embroiled in something like this and not be able to play in the next World Cup or play rugby full stop 
of his contract torn yeah. up. I think you know on a it's hard to go past on a strictly functional level that you know being written into his contract that he wasn't going to um, you know do this or you know tweet the, or um, Instagram these things um, and violating that. Um, you know, it's hard to go, and especially if it's a private, you know, contractual arrangement, it's not touched by government subsidy. It's an arrangement between, you know, in the same way that you can't just front up to work, um, you know, inebriated or do whatever you wish on social media and not bring the, whatever company you work for, or, you know, into disrepute. Um, you know, you're governed by agreements and a code of conduct and sanction and that kind of thing. Um, so was there... Was there a clause in his contract? Yeah, apparently. Stuff like yeah, that? apparently so. So when the first, when it sort of first round the block when it happened, um, was put into his contract, and I haven't read the exact clause, but I guess that was the the whole reason why he was released from a sort of contractual point of view is because it violated his contract, and so okay. you know it's again it's very hard to just go past that, but I think you know the whole thing is like this isn't something that's again like a cold issue of. Um, courts, clerks and contracts. It's sort of much more than that about, um, you know, role models and setting a good example in public and, um, you know, people uh, taking offence or, you know, looking at things, you know, whether people's feelings might be hurt and that sort of thing. And, yeah. and you know, like I just think that on the whole, you know, one, it's been hugely unfortunate. Um, you know, two, it's hard to argue um, the case that he should have retained his position purely from a legal or contractual sense. But third, aside from those things, I just sort of sense that, um, again, with, be, with it being so unfortunate, like what have we sort of come to now where, <laughs> you know, like this sort of thing can happen, um, you know, where people supposedly look to um, guidance from uh you know, role models who say these sorts of things, but who play football, um, you know, there's, I would urge young, and I give young people a lot more credit than that. You know, I think that, you know, when we were young, not too long ago, a young man, and I write a lot about role models in, in the published work in my book as well. Um, you know, you've got to look to the, and we've talked about it on here, you've got to look to the, the right role models, um, you know, and I think, you you can you you as a young person you're able to sort that out a lot much like a lot better than what people would sort of give credit to a lot of young men in particular for about not just sort of like flying off the handle and um, going and you know inciting violence or following someone's poor example um, you know there's lots of other really good role models to follow in society that aren't NBA players or NFL players who've got terrible track records. Um, this is almost the reverse thing with Izzy Folau, where he's not, a, yeah. um, you know, he's he's certainly not, um, you know, out of wedlock or, you know, promoting drugs or getting, you know, under arrest or, you know, battering someone or, um, whereas, you know, a lot of entertainers, um, very, you know, commonly in a lot of NBA players and NFL players or baseball to a less extent, but, you know, in the United States, get caught up and embroiled in all the time. Um, and, you know, it's a bad place to find a role model. But if you do find examples, you I think you're a bit eclectic. You know, you take the good out of what they do and, you know, don't follow them to a T. Otherwise, it's just absolutely foolish. Yeah, and we probably overweight the, uh, as a culture, we overweight the importance of sports stars and entertainers as role models. Mm. Like, 
if that's I, I'm reading that as your implied yeah. message there. Like we don't, you know, there's plenty of other people to pick from, kind of thing. Mm. We don't need to focus on them. But yeah. just going back to the, the his contract stuff, I didn't realize there was actually a clause in there which said he couldn't do that. Mm. But even then, trying to put on my legal hat for a bit, I would be surprised that they could uh, get him to sign a contract which like actually forces him to give up his religious views in a way. Yeah. Like to me, I don't know if you can contract out of that type of thing. Mm. And that seems to be surprising because, I mean, one thing I think Janet Albrickson talked about mm. in the in the Australian, my brother sent me mm. her, her article on it, and she was saying just because you have a code of conduct as an organisation doesn't mean it gives you the freedom to, uh, you know, rewrite the workplace discrimination laws it's mm. like you know the, the laws are the laws and your code of conduct is you know mm. is is below that and these days organizations mm. are using code of conduct to kind of like act as little uh, feudal chieftains in their own organization yeah. so yeah it'll be interesting to see how this goes in court and i still feel like you know to have him to be able to fire him on these grounds is kind of like where's this is a really slippery slope because like what next mm. oh you know, I post, I believe in, I don't believe in climate change on my Twitter profile and, and then I get fired or something like that. Mm. And that's, yeah, you know, that's just, that's just an example. Yeah, yeah. But, and I, again, yeah, I sort of should have mentioned that too. And you're right, like it's precedent, like what is next? And I think like you just sort of give an inch and this will start to unravel in a few years time. Um, you know, in the same way that, you know, you look at what leeway and, you know, whenever a a rugby player or whoever makes a political stance how much they're applauded as a great progressive thinker on on issue on certain issues and you know applauded for taking stances on you know on supposedly moral grounds about you know different things that they advocate for um you know you just i just you know you'd like things to stay out of you know you know out of sport um and things not yeah. to be so promoted and advocated for where it's like, you know, the one domain that you go, and this was the big thing about Kaepernick and the the NFL player taking a knee um, in the US. It just basically, you know, killed NFL, like, viewership. Because, you know, people would want to go to, you know, sports to get away from this, this sort of thing. And, and this kind of, like, the, you know, this political posturing and places to make statements, like, it wasn't really a sporting field. But, um, you know, that's kind of, it's not immune I uh, sense anymore. Yeah, I, I, it, for me, it really uh, resembles what happened with James Damore at Google, where the circumstances yeah. around his firing. Yep. And like, you know, places like Google, and I'm sure you know the NRL are all about diversity and inclusion. But when you start firing people for having controversial viewpoints, mm. what type of diversity are you left with? Mm. You're left with people that all have the same opinions. So that's yep. that seems to be contradictory. I don't know. Yep. I think. Yeah, this, again, going back to the whole point, this is this seems to be where our the modern day culture wars are around freedom of speech. Yeah, and it's sometimes not even like the actually the actual content of what someone said. It's like you know you might have seen the Roger Scruton um, saga recently, where he got um, he got let go. He had an interview with the New Statesman, I believe, in the UK, and um, you know it was said that he he mentioned you know all kinds of you know right-wing things you know um islamic immigration you know the, the, you can go down the list but uh, but when and so it was the perception that he said those things whereas the spectators douglas murray created a transcript or let went back and a 
actually went through the tapes about the record, you know, the record, and it was like none of these things were. They were all lifted out of context. Like he yeah. mentioned all of them with you know appropriate caveats, but it was the perception of what he said that just gained critical mass, and he was fired, you know, or let go by. Um, you know, one I think one minister called for his resignation almost immediately, like within twelve hours in in the House of Commons, and the minister who was actually who had ultimate oversight for his um, employment as a consultant or whatever he was doing, um, um, you know, sacked him basically, and then you know, yeah. and that was literally within hours, um, you know, of this this happening, or he claimed that he said these things, and then. He never actually said them, and but by then it's too late, you know. So it's kind of like the noise is enough, not really the content. And you know, look at you know Demorb's mano uh, manifest. I was going to say, but his um, memo that he wrote, um, it's like you know the guy's got no axe to grind. He's he was you know Google <laughs> engineer, certainly not of any political persuasion or deep philosophical yeah. like bent. I'm just literally coldly looking at the facts, and you can find a, the the report itself. I'm sure it's around, but um, yeah, it's yeah. We'll yeah. put a link in the show notes, but um, yeah, the poor guy's the poor guy's harmless. He's just trying yeah. to you know help help Google to create a productive environment. Gets fired. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. And I forget the exact ins and outs, but basically for listeners' sake, so he he was the Google engineer that um, got fired for writing a report on. I, I sent. Uh, it was why, um, you know, uh, I guess races or cultural groups and or genders are underrepresented in some components of of the business. Yeah, mainly mainly focused on gender. Gender, yeah. yeah. Um, and again, looking at the sort of scientific or sober rational reasons as to why that occurs, um, that is not to do with discrimination. And um, yeah, I thought that was, you know, again. Um, not a not a political axe to grind in the world, but <laughs> it was enough yeah. to generate so much heat within a short space of time that um so yeah, I think like there's that there's all these things sort of going on that give people a bit of like, well, you know, like let's just pause and um sort of look at things here. Now whether they're all properly connected, um I just sense that there's a bit of background noise on these sorts of issues that have fed into the result that we've seen um on the weekend. Mate, just now that you've looped back to the election, mm -hmm. I was going to ask you one more thing, mm -hmm. which was about Shorten. Mm -hmm. um, he, you know, lost the unlosable election. Do you reckon that's partly, you know, how much do you reckon is to do with him as an individual and how much is it to do with the stuff we were talking about earlier in terms of taxes and stuff like that? Do you reckon it's, do you reckon people were just repulsed by the, the individual himself? Well, gosh, I mean, look, I you know, I do feel sorry for the guy, let's just say. You know, he spent a lot of his time... No, I don't. <laughs> no. Um, you know, just running up again. And you know what, what you know, seemed like a slam dunk. And, uh, yeah, I, I, to be honest, I was very surprised, and I don't want to be mean here, but, like, I was surprised he was in a position that he was in. Um like even getting the leadership off Albanese or why even someone like, um, you know, Plibersek or um, Chris Bowen, who's clearly got a good, or even um, Andrew Lee, like they've got a cast of people there who, um, you know, who I thought would have been much better contenders to present towards um, the electorate or as, as a proper leader than, than him. Um, and especially at a time when, 
um, personality politics. I was talking about this with a colleague. Yeah, is so absolutely. important. Um, you know, you want to be putting someone forward who, um, you know, is hugely appealing to people because that's such an important thing in, you know, in, in the West anyway, in Western democracy. But, you know, particularly in, you know, in Britain, you know, David Cameron was very much like this as a personality. Um, Jacinda Ardern is hugely popular, even, you know, um, in Australia among people as much as Kiwis. Um, yeah, the, the style and the persona of the leader matters so much. And I do think it did have a, you know, quite a fair bit to do with. Um, but yeah, I was just surprised that he was he was there in the first instance in, in terms of being the alternate prime minister for so long. Um, yeah. When I do think they've got... And look, they, I mean, just the other thing to mention too, Shopo, is um, the, the handshake factor. I was going to mention Penny Wong as a potential, but I think there was something in that that I don't, I don't want to... Are you referring to that video? Yeah, the, the song in Birmingham getting... when he went to shake hands um, with her yeah. and then she just, you know, looked down and shook her head and uh, that, you know, um, almost sort of went viral in the sort of last week of the campaign and... I don't want to overplay it because I don't think it was a huge, but, you know, there's something in that I sense where people are yeah. turned off by, you know, and she was asked about this, like, when we want a more civil politics and, you know, we need to be treat each other, you know, like and better and then you see images like that occurring and it's just you get a good insight into, you know, what the types of people some of these people are. And I think that's really yeah. puts people off, that sort of thing. Like, it's just totally horrible to watch. Do you think that played a factor? Oh, when you talk about like, you know, the nature of modern day politics and you're right, it, it has become much more about the personalities. And I, I think we both agree that's not necessarily a good thing, mm. but that's the state of the game. And yeah, he, you wouldn't think that he'd stack up very well in that. And mm. it is kind of surprising that he was leader for so long. Mm. And it's exemplified by the stuff you're talking about. Like he just, mm. he exudes sliminess and, mm. you know, a lack of charisma. And that shows in stuff like those awkward moments and shaking hands and, Mm. Yeah, I mean, the even people like John Howard, who would have been unpopular, mm. I don't reckon many people would have snubbed him because mm. the man had charisma and he's just got something about him, and that's what you want in a leader, left or right. Mm. It's gonna, you know, that's how these people get to where they are because mm. they have that charisma mm. and ability to bring people around. Yeah. And clearly, yeah, yeah, clearly he lacked that. Yeah, but well, and actually speaking of leaders, there, you know, did um. You know, Bob Hawke obviously passing away was, uh, you know, uh, obviously sad, but um, I, I'm not sure if it was a decisive factor. But for me, it just sort of, and I, I sense for other people as well, it kind of, he represented, um, yes, one, a different kind of leader, but two, um, a different kind of labour politics that was much yeah. more sensible, uh, much less dragged towards progressive, you know, green uh, politics than what we yeah. see now. And, you know, I've read some analysis in a few places where it said that that, that had been a factor, uh, supposedly, in how people thought, you know, just being Hawke's passing just reminded them of what Labor wasn't and certainly what Bill Shorten wasn't. Yeah, and the thing that, I mean, aside from the reforms that him and Keating did, the other thing that keeps coming up when people talk about Hawke is, like, his drinking ability. <laughs> you know, the yard, his drinking the yard capability. Yeah, and that's all tongue-in-cheek, but it, it's, I think it's, there's a little bit of truth to it as well. Mm. People like that he was a bloke. Like, that's, mm. you know, they want something that can, as simple as that, that they can hang on to. And it's kind of how Trump got to where he is. Like, there's a lot of people that identify with Trump mm. as a, like, you know, 
guy from where well, he was from Queens or something, yeah, New just, Jersey or whatever. Yeah. It's like you know he's not yeah he's not like your Mitt Romney who's like you know top pedigree or whatever. Yeah. So yeah. there, unfortunately, this it's not just all about the policies. There is this popularity to it. I mean, mm. it's majoritarian vote. So mm. this element has to play a role. Yeah. And obviously, ScoMo is not you know you know the most popular guy around, mm. but he was maybe just marginally more charismatic and yeah. appealing than Shorten, which helped him a little bit. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It is interesting at the same time that, you know, where leadership, politi- you know, like personality politics matters a great deal, whereas our system kind of, um, like, puts a bit of a handbrake on that presidential-style politics. So it's like a really interesting balance where, you know, people find, um, you know, politics can switch off from it and find it intensely boring. Whereas in a presidential system, it's exciting. You know, you got to mobilise, you got to rattle people to come out and vote. Whereas, um, you know, I was exchanging an article with Will um, you know, last a few weeks ago where it's like, you don't get that in a Westminster system in particular like ours where it's compulsory voting. Because, you know, you've got to really toe the line in some instances that you can't come out with too wacky or left field um sort of very ultra populist politics because um, it's inevitably going to, you know, one vote you attract is one that you're going to, um, you know, dissuade. So it's kind of an interesting, um, you know, dynamic where we're encouraging more personality politics in a system that's not entirely Mentally. designed for it. Yeah. And that's probably, that's not a good thing either. I think that kind of uh, is a reflection of, the fact that people don't quite understand the institutions we have. Like the amount of times I've heard people say, oh, you know, it was wrong for Turnbull to go out the way he did or, you know, Rudd got stabbed in the back. It's kind of like that's how the system's designed. We're not meant to pick the leader. We're meant to pick our party member and they choose their leader. Mm. And, you know, how it's lined about you're only you're only leader as long as you hold the confidence of your peers or the party. Yep. It's uh, mm. Yeah, the fact that all the stuff we're talking about with personalities, the fact that it's become more like that I think is a bad sign because yep. – it's not up to us to pick the leader. Yeah, yeah, I don't feel the same way. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I agree. I think it's just an understanding of the system that we've got. Like, it's just, um, and you know, a lot of people just simply don't are not aware of it. Um, of yeah. that's that's how it is in a Westminster um, two party primary system that we've got. That that's just what happens. Um, I guess you know if yeah it you watch too much West Wing or whatever, it's a yeah. game, or you follow US politics too closely, it's a completely different system. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Um, and do you sense... So I was thinking back to an earlier episode that we did, um, Could a Hawk Keating or Howard Survive Today? And um, yeah. maybe, you know, could a Hawk... Could he have won this election, you think, Jordan? Oh, I don't know. I think you know these questions we we could you know chew the fat over. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know. It's too hard, too hard. I'll pass. Yeah. One thing. Okay, I've got a question for you though. Um, so they're talking now about the potential Labor leader, mm-hmm. and I noticed that uh, Albo was pretty quick to put up his hand, and Bowen's thrown his hat in the ring today. Mm-hmm. Um, who do you think? One, who do you think's more likely to win, and who do you think the Liberals would like to see win? Who do you think they? You know, it was easier for them to beat. Oh, look, I think if Albo put his hand up, that would be, you know, like a um, a, a basic rehashing of Shorten. I think that would be, you know, a great outcome for the Libs, for the coalition. Because, I, again, I just I just think that they need someone, you know, Labor just really needs to obviously have a hard look at their policies, 
you know, surprise, surprise. They're not hugely insightful, but about who they're putting forward as a, um, as you know, they just need some fresh blood. We've looked at the front bench there for so long and seen the same kind of figures around, um, and it doesn't seem that you know the libs have done a good job of recycling and putting new people. Not often at their own choice um, because of yeah. their leadership spills and. Um, backbench moves and all that sort of and how the party room sort of played out but I, I just sense that um, I, 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 putting Bowen there would probably would be a good strategy I think for Labor and a much more yeah. tricky outcome for you know Bowen I think has got quite a you know he's written a couple of books um, on you know, I remember reading I, he's got one on you know Australia's greatest treasurers um, which is quite I've only read a bit <laughs> is he number one <laughs> Thanks. Oh no, he hasn't. He hasn't been treasurer yet. That's right. So it's a yeah, yet. that's right. So it's not doesn't include yeah. shadows, but um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, and I, you know, I think he'd be a, a, a wise, practical choice for them if um, you know, going forward. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but Albo represents the left faction of Labor, and Shorten was the right side, wasn't he? And then um, uh, Bowen's on the right faction as well, isn't he? Yeah, he. Um, I'm not sure how. It, what the breakdown specifically is and um but i do yeah i do know that shorten was in the middle somewhere he was sort of in the moderate faction yeah and um but yeah it's just like i just fear you know well not fear but like there's you know for his sake if he was serious but they'd put him forward albanese and people would see him and go oh this guy again like you know (laughs) we've seen we've literally seen him for 20 years you know and being it'd be you know, not a smart move. Um, you know, and people like Andrew Lee, again, I just mentioned, who's um federal member and he's quite a bright sort of person, young guy still. Um, you know, he's done a lot of work in terms of, you know, social capital. Um, he's an economist, you know, public policy wonk, um, you know, very renowned legal mind as well. Um, who just sense is someone who you'd probably want um you know, in the chamber, um, on the front foot, arguing policy is a breath of fresh air. Um, and then, but, you know, it, people will be, you know, youth isn't always a, um, a substitute for someone who might be a good leader, you know, like with good ideas, because, you know, Jim Chalmers is another guy who was putting his hand up for potential contention. And, you know, he was um, Rudd's advisor. So it's kind of like, you know, and look how that kind of worked out, you know. Yeah. Um, so it's not exactly like a slam dunk, you know, this guy's bringing new ideas kind of thing. Yeah, I would have thought that Bowen is the most uh, dangerous to the Libs, mm. but yeah. I don't know, that's that's my uninformed opinion. <laughs> but you, you, you would think that someone who's closer to the centre has more of a chance of, you know, stealing stealing the uh, stealing the next election. Mm. But yeah. I guess we'll see. Yeah. And yeah. and Bowen of course made you know horrific comment if you don't like us, don't like us, don't vote for us, or if you don't like our policies. Don't... Yeah, very similar to Clinton's gaff <laughs> yeah. and Romney's gaff. Yeah. So yeah. Um easy to meme. It's very fodder for social media. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um well Jordan, I think that sort of exhausts time and I um hope listeners enjoyed our um very casual lax analysis of um, recent proceedings in the federal election. But, um, yeah, thanks very much, Jordan. I thought that was good.
Thank you, Sean. I enjoyed that. Cheers. <laughs> All right, listeners, and remember, um, whatever medium you're listening to the podcast on, uh, please rate um, or pass on to your friends. Word of mouth's a really good thing in podcasts, so um, please let your family and friends know about it. Um, get in touch with me at seanjacobs.com.au or check out some of my latest articles and um, also a link to some of the things that Jordan and I have been discussing um, on this episode. I'll drop those into the show notes. So thanks very much, Jordan, once again. And uh, dear listeners, until next time. Thanks, Sean.